0: Here's here's what I think. I'm I'm confident that some people just can't help it. This is this is my thought. There's some people. They're probably they're nice people. They're probably good people. They're probably well intentioned people. But in spite of all of that, there are just some people that every time they open their mouth, something offensive comes out of it. Do you know anybody like that? We were in some meetings this week, and. Uh, Nice, 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 nice person You know, all that's good But it was like, you know There's just people that they can't help but offend you Does that make sense? And like at one point we're having this conversation And the individual was trying to say You know, about some place where you wouldn't want to live And in the process What they said was They said, you know, it's some place like you Where you wouldn't want to live Some place like, you know, know, Toledo Some place like that Are you kidding me? He's thinking he's funny. We're thinking, how can we kill you? <laughs> right? It goes, it goes to a different point. There's some people that just, they open their mouths and you're like, man, what are you thinking? My greatest concern about the next 40 minutes or so is that somehow with the words that you're about to hear, you're going to be offended. Not that you'll personally be offended, because I'm I'm kind of over that after the third service. <laughs> um, we believe that the Bible is God's word of truth, Amen? Amen. And sometimes when we when we dig into the truth, the truth says some things that are offensive. So I'm not I'm not worried that you won't like me or that you won't like the church. My big concern is that in these next few moments, somehow you're gonna let somehow you're gonna be offended with God and that you'll miss in the things we're going to talk about in the next few moments who he really is what he really does in our lives weren't the baptisms fun today and we watched in the three services we watched over 30 people be baptized it was it was just phenomenal we had a guy in the, in the second service who's counting the days of his sobriety. He said 100, it's 119 days since he's used heroin. And the place just celebrated with him. I mean, it's awesome to see this. A guy in the first service who just told us literally how his life in the last few years has fallen apart. Best thing said some old friends invited him to church and are helping him get right with Jesus. And when he got baptized this morning, we just celebrated with him. Why? Because God loves us and he does amazing things in our lives. Don't, don't forget that in what we're going to say in the next 40 minutes. So we're in this series of messages that we call spoiler alert because we're telling you how things are going to end. And we've been talking about the end of the world. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about eternity, which is kind of the end of things. But we know that eternity never ends. So eternity is really the beginning of things, right? It's not the end. It's when things really start. And I've got good news and I've got bad news. And the good news is heaven and the bad news is hell. And since next week is Mother's Week... We thought we'd save, or Mother's Day, right? Next week is Mother's Day. Uh, Mother's you can have the whole week. We don't care, right? It's fine. Yeah, I guess. Happy Mother's Week, Mom. Um, uh, Since it's Mother's Day next week, we thought we'd save the good news for next week. Okay, moms? So we'll go to heaven, because it's not Mother-in-Law's Day. So we will, um, we'll go to, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's one of those little, boom, boom, you're listening. That's awesome. Um, So we'll go to heaven next week. This morning, though. We're going to go to hell and back. And some of what we'll talk about is controversial. Because some of you aren't going to like it. And some of you maybe have heard some different things. But we're going to look at what God's word says. And I know, friends, I'm not not dumb. I know a lot of what we've talked about in this series. Answers some questions and then just makes us ask more questions. And that's not always a bad thing. And the Bible talks an awful lot about the subject of hell. It's there a lot. The deal is, though, we don't get like a definitive doctrine or an explanation of what hell is is. We get a lot of little details and and snippets and snapshots of what it might be like, but there's no real passage of scripture that you can just go to and say, this is what hell is. And what's really interesting too, even about that, when I studied the different theologians and read a bunch of different commentaries and stuff on this, what I found was so many times they would talk about the subject, but they would leave more questions than they would answers. I was just kind of getting frustrated trying to figure it out. And then I realized that even though scripture tells us an awful lot, probably the most definitive passage is in Revelation chapter 20 where it talks about how death and hell will be thrown into the lake of fire at some point when Jesus comes back and conquers and everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life will find themselves in the lake of fire, which is a terrifying passage, Revelation 20. To read that and to hear that, although that's there and that's in Scripture, there's no real place where we get a real definitive explanation of hell. And what is even kind of maybe more troublesome is the person who talks about hell the most is Jesus. Because isn't he love? Isn't he supposed to be the picture of love expressed to us? And yet the person who seemed to bring it up the most and talk the most gruesomely about it was love incarnate. Which causes me to ask an awful lot of questions. We, we don't get a whole lot of description, but there is this story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16. In fact, if you have your Bibles, whether in a, in a print or digital form, why don't you turn there with me because we're going to read the whole story this morning. Luke chapter 16, there's a, there's a passage there where Jesus is telling a story. And at the, at the heart of it, the story's not even really about hell. He's trying to make a, another point to those he's, he's writing to. But the story takes place in heaven and in hell. In paradise and in hell. It takes place in these two different places. And we'll describe heaven a whole lot more next week and look into it. But Jesus gives us a snapshot. And if anybody knows what it's like, it would be him, right? He's the creator of all He knows all things. And so as he tells the story, he gives us a few hints of what hell may be like. Now, he's not trying to give us a full definition. He's just giving us a little bit of insight. And we're going to read through this story. And then after we read the the whole story that Jesus tells, we're going to take a few minutes and I want to make a few observations about what hell is like. And then we're going to talk about how that applies to our lives and what that means for you and me. So let's read the story together. Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 19. Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Was Jesus a storyteller or what? In just a couple of sentences. Look at the details he's given us. There's a rich man, dressed in purple, fine linen. Right? He had it all. The reason that this was important was he was not just a rich man. He was filthy rich because he was dressed in purple. Purple was a sign of richness. It was a sign of wealth. It was a sign of royalty. And the reason being that if you were going to dye something purple, you had to have... This dye that came from this um, shellfish at that time, which was not cheap and was not easy to get, so anything that was purple did not mean you lived in Maumee. It meant you were royalty, right? Because mommy, purple color. You guys knew that, right? All right, never mind. Okay, it was it was of great value. And then he talks about Lazarus. Lazarus was a beggar. He was outside the rich man's gate, which means this rich man had quite a spread. And he laid there, and he had sores that covered him. Not only is that gross, but if you look at Jewish literature, it also tells you that, that someone with sores, open sores like that, really was viewed as someone with not much value. He would have been disregarded. To the point that he just longed to have the food that fell from the rich man's table. Didn't say he did have it, he just wanted to have it. And the dogs came and licked his sores. And in my mind, I'm kind of like, oh, that's sweet. Lassie came up. Those those weren't pets. Those were wild dogs that just scavenged and roamed the streets. Can you see the contrast Jesus is making between the rich man and Lazarus? What's so significant about that is that this rich man, most likely because Jesus was telling this story about a rich man in a Jewish culture, this was probably a man who knew the Bible. He knew the scriptures. He probably went to church every weekend. He probably was very respected in his community. The question was, did he do what he knew he was supposed to do? Did he just know it? Or did he know it and did he live it? You see the contrast Jesus is making here? Let's get back to the story. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades. Hades is a Greek word for hell where he was in torment he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his, of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son. do you notice even the tenderness that Abraham had with this guy and why Abraham? Because Abraham was kind of the, the father of Judaism. He was the George Washington of the Jewish faith, Right? So Jesus uses him as the spokesman in this passage. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Do you see the difference there? Hey, rich man, you could have done something for Lazarus in your life. You knew what you should have done. Did he do it? Did he do it? Apparently not. He knew what he should have done, but he didn't. And so Abraham points out this this eternal um, turnaround, how the tables have been turned here. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. A rich man answered, then I beg you, Father... "'Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. "'Let him warn them, so they will also not come to this place of torment.' "'Abraham replied, "'They have Moses and the prophets. "'Let them listen to them. "'No, Father Abraham, he said, "'if, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent.' And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, and Moses and the prophets means the scriptures, if they don't listen to the scriptures, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. End of Jesus' story. Now Jesus is making some interesting points here, but we learned some really key things about hell in this passage. Let me give you three of them. Number one, and this may be critically important for you, maybe maybe the most important thing you can start with today. Number one, hell is real. Because we live in a world and culture that uses that word so flippantly, right? Because yes. if we're looking for just some word to fill in because we're not sure what to say, we put that word there. If we're excited, we can use the word hell. If we're angry, we can use the word hell. We use it as an exclamation. We use it as an expletive. We use it to describe things we don't know how else to describe. It's, it's so prevalent in the language of our culture, and yet, we do all that and forget that it's really a place and that it's a place we need to think about. Scripture talks about it a lot. I, I remember kind of being a kid in church when I was a little kid in church, and if the preacher ever used the word hell, you'd look over at your junior high buddy and you'd be like, he swore, he, right? But that's not what we're doing today. This isn't junior high stuff. Hell is real. As we've gone through this series, we've talked about the rapture. We've talked about the judgment seat of Christ. Last week, we talked about the tribulation, and I know that a lot of this has raised for some of you questions on top of the answers that we've been looking at. And one of the questions I've been asked several times is, "Okay, but but before Jesus comes back, what happens if I die? Where do I go when I die?" Because there's a lot of different questions that people ask about that. What happens at that point? Because we talked about it with the rapture that the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's bodies in the ground that are going to come up out of the ground and meet Jesus in the air. So what happened in that in-between time? What happens when we die? And that's a really, really good question. And there's several different thoughts. Sometimes people talk about what, what is sometimes referred to as like soul sleep. Or maybe when you die, then your soul, even though your body's in the ground, your soul kind of goes to sleep. And you're just kind of chilling until Jesus shows up, Right? But that's not, a, that's not a biblical expression of that. That's not a biblical idea. The other thing that maybe some of you have heard or have been taught along the way is the idea of purgatory. That there's, there's some place that's kind of this in-between. When you die and then when you find yourself in heaven. And it has this concept. And there's, Maybe you come from a religious tradition that teaches that. It has this concept kind of of waiting. And while you're waiting, you're kind of paying the price for the things you did here. You're kind of making things right. Kind of this, this idea of I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care of some things and then I'll have made my way right so that I can get into heaven. But that's not a biblical idea either. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament is there any expression of a place like purgatory. And when people try to make it fit, it just it doesn't make sense. It doesn't follow good biblical principles of interpretation. There's no idea of a place called purgatory. In fact, the truth is this. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says just the opposite. He says, it's not by works of righteousness that I have done that I am saved, but according to his mercy, according to his grace, according to his unmerited favor to me that I have been saved. Not just in this life, but in the life to come. There's nowhere that it talks about. There's this little rest area between death and Jesus, right? So what does Scripture teach us? Scripture teaches us this. You're either here or you're there. It's, it's one or the other. Here, here's what Paul says. Listen to his language. Philippians chapter 1, verse 22. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Do you see what he said there? He doesn't talk about a gap. He says, I'm either here or I'm there. I'm either in this body or I'm with Jesus. Look at what else he goes on to say. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now next week, we'll, we'll talk more about heaven and eternity and what all that looks like and the, kind of the timeline and all of that. We'll dig into that a little bit more. But here's, here's just the bottom line. Scripture says that after we die, we go to our place of eternal destiny. And for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, it's in the presence of Jesus. You are with him. But the rich man that we just talked about, what happened to him? He died, he was buried, and he opened his eyes in hell. He found himself there. That's what this story tells us. When you die, you find yourself in the place of your eternal destiny. So what is hell? Well, we'll describe it a little bit more in a moment. Let me give you kind of just a brief definition of the topic. Hell is a place prepared for the devil and his angels that will be the eternal home of the unrighteous. It is a place of darkness, eternal fire, and the absence of the presence of God. Let me read that for you again. Hell is a place prepared for the devil and And his angels. Did he get that? Did God create hell for you? No. It was created as a place for the devil. And his angels who rebelled against him. Not as like some resort for northerners. So they could warm up. Right? It's critical for us to understand that. But because of sin. Hell is a place prepared for the devil. And his angels. That will be the eternal home of the unrighteous. It is a place of darkness. Eternal fire. In the absence of the presence of God. Here's some scripture to help back that up. Matthew chapter 25 verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left. This is Jesus talking. Depart from me you who are cursed into the eternal fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. And in the next few moments, we're going to to talk about this some more. I want to give you some more ideas to help you understand just what hell is really like. But before we get there, I I want to talk about a couple of things that are critically important for you to understand. Because you're going to hear these things about hell, and these are some things that just aren't true. Because there's a couple of places where in our, in our day and in, in our culture in particular, and even in, in, even in the church world, even among Christians, sometimes you'll hear people talk about these things regarding hell. And they're not biblical ideas. They're ideas that sound good to us maybe. They're ideas that we might wish were true, but they're not true because they're not biblical. One of them is something that's called universalism. It's called universalism. And the idea behind universalism is is kind of this, this really... Um, it, it's, it's kind of nice. It's a pleasing idea that says everybody gets a second chance. Here's a, here's a definition. Universalism is the teaching that all human beings, angels, and Satan himself will eventually be saved and enjoy God's love, presence, and blessing forever. So did you, you get that there? Universalism says that all human beings... Angels and Satan himself will eventually be saved and enjoy God's love, presence, and blessing forever. Excuse me, I didn't want to blow it. Um, This is really important for us to talk about. Because a lot of people like to say, look... Everybody gets a second chance. It's all going to work out okay for everybody in the end. Even if you lived a bad life here, someday you're going to get a chance. Yeah, you might have to be punished a little bit, but it's all going to turn out okay. So don't you worry about it. We're all winners. Everybody goes home with a trophy. You're all going to get a second chance. But that's not what Scripture says. The Bible doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible says this very clearly. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Just as people are destined to die once... And after that, to face judgment. You live, you die, you face judgment. That's the end of the story. Scripture doesn't promise that you're just going to get this second chance. It's nice for us to say that. It's nice for us to go, look, love wins in the end. Everything's going to work out okay. Everybody's going to be a winner. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture speaks very clearly about a place called hell that goes on forever. Now let's, let's take another angle at this, because sometimes people say, look, don't worry about it, everybody's going to get a second chance. The other idea is this, where people want to say, hey, don't look, don't worry about hell, because it's just, it's, it's just going to wrap itself up. It's an idea called annihilationism. Annihilationism. And it's the teaching that the wicked cease to exist at death or after a period in the lake of fire. Annihilationism is the teaching that the wicked cease to exist at death or after a period in the, wake of fire, in the lake of fire. So here's how this works out. Sure, maybe there's a hell, but you only go there for a while, and then once you burn up, you burn out, and then it's all over. And then, and then it's just done. Or maybe you just die, and whoop, that's it. There's no more. You're just done at that point. Which, to be honest, is kind of really a nice thing to think about. Yeah, you just, you just kind of Stop. But that's not what scripture says. In fact, scripture says hell is a place that goes on and on and on, even longer than my sermons. It goes on and on and on. Matthew chapter 18, verse 8. Jesus is speaking dramatically here. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And eternity is a long time. Here's what I want you to get. First thing. In spite of other ideas that people might say to you. Hell is real. Number one. Number two thing that we see in this story about hell. Number two. Hell is torment. That's the word that's used in this passage several times. Hell is torment. Listen to the the expression that comes from the rich man as he's speaking to Abraham. Luke chapter 16 verse 24. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. First thing, this dude's clueless, isn't he? He's in hell and he says to Abraham, Abraham, can you send Lazarus over to the speedway to get me a bottle of water? I just, I just need him to help me out. And it's like, dude, you're, you're so lost and so self-focused You're so locked up in yourself that you still can't realize even where you are and how bad it is for you. The way he chose to live his life has just perpetuated him to this this place of hell. And this passage shows us a couple of things. One is this about hell it is a place of never ending fire, it is a place of never ending fire. Over and over and over again, when Jesus describes hell in the Gospels, he uses the term everlasting fire, eternal fire. He says it over and over and over again. In this passage, the rich man says, I'm in torment in this fire. Why does Jesus use that analogy? And this is where theologians wrestle with this, that study these these things. They say, Is it real fire that's in hell? Or is it just a symbol? Is it just something symbolic that's there? Here's what I know. It's one of two things. Number one, it's either that hell is a place with very real flames and fire. Or number two, Jesus used that analogy to help us understand that it's something much worse than that. Either way, you don't want to go there. Because whatever it is, it goes on forever and ever and ever. So it's a place... Of eternal fire this passage says. Here's a, here's a second thing we see here. Look at Luke chapter 16 verse 25. Remember Lazarus says this to Abraham. And then Abraham says to him. But Abraham replied Son. Remember that in your lifetime, you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. You had good things. You could have done good things with those things. You knew the truth. You could have lived it out. But instead, you chose to be self-centered to do what you wanted instead of what God would have wanted for you to do. And now you're in this place and you can't do anything about it. Here's something else that's key to know about hell. It is a place of remorse. It is a place of great remorse, a place of great regret because what you wish you could change when you get there, you can't do anything about. In fact, Scripture uses this, uh, this imagery quite often. Let me read you one example of this. Jesus actually says this frequently in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 13, verse 41. He says, The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil, and they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we don't use that term, gnashing of teeth, quite often. Unless your team loses, right? Maybe sometimes you've got a little gnashing of teeth going on. What is that? Do you ever, when you get like frustrated or upset, do you ever just kind of grit your teeth? Do you ever clench your mouth? Anybody ever do that? I do. If I'm real focused or if I'm, mm, I'm going to, you know... uh, this goes even beyond that to the point where you're just so internally frustrated the only way you can respond to get that out is just the gnashing of your teeth, it's actually kind of this nasty imagery, but it was a Jewish thought process, it was was imagery that showed this idea of great anger and remorse, because I'm here and now I can't do anything about it you ever done anything you regretted? that's what hell is One last thing that we see here, which is really interesting um, Luke chapter 16, verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Here is probably the most dreadful thing about hell. This is what makes hell hell. It is a place of separation from God. Hell is a place of separation from God. His presence isn't there. His grace isn't there. His love isn't there. His protection isn't there. His peace isn't there. His mercy isn't there. And the reason we don't know how bad that is, is because even how much we may have run from Him, we've never been far from it. But when it's gone... C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, writes a chapter on the subject of hell. It's brilliant. And he talks there about the objections that people raise to hell. And one of the things that he brings up in the process is he, he asks the question, he says, those of you who object to hell, what do you want God to do? What is it that you really want for him to do? And his last question that he asks is this, do you want God to just leave these people alone? His conclusion, alas, that is exactly what hell is. When God says, okay, I'll, I'll leave you alone. You'll get what you want. It's kind of troubling, to be honest. Because if you really start thinking about these things, hell is an eternal place filled with remorse and separation from God that leads to extreme torment. And all of this comes from Jesus, which seems really a problem to me. <laughs> Because if he's so filled with love, and, and let me just say this, I think this is really critical for you to understand. If anybody enjoys preaching about this kind of stuff, they need to have their head examined, right? There are those people. I'm hoping I'm not, I may mean, need my head examined, but this isn't why. There's no joy in this. Nobody wants to talk about these things. Because it's, it's troubling in this whole process some of you you are going where do where do i where do i find out more how do i understand more about this there is a great book called erasing hell um, just like a, what you do on a chalkboard you erasing hell it's by francis chan Chan does a wonderful job of taking the scriptures, this subject of hell, giving it a biblical treatment and dealing with a lot of the questions that you and I wrestle with on this topic. Erasing Hell by Francis Chan. And in it he talks about this very idea of how troubling it is that Jesus is the one who gives us such a description of this torment. Listen to what Chan writes. This is from the book Erasing Hell. He says, Jesus chose strong and terrifying language when he spoke of hell. I believe he chose to speak this way because he loves us and wanted to warn us. So let's not miss the point. He spoke of hell as a horrifying place, characterized by suffering, fire, darkness, and lamentation. I believe his intention was to stir a fear in us that would cause us to take hell seriously and avoid it at all costs. Chan goes on to say, I was a bit surprised at how many harsh statements Jesus made about hell probably caught me off guard because I'm so used to people emphasizing his words of blessing, not his words of warning. Some of his words may have shocked you, but I would like you to consider the following thoughts. To which he goes on to say, We are bound by the words of the Creator the one who will do what is right, the one who invented justice and knows perfectly what the unbeliever deserves. God has never asked us to figure out his justice or to see if his way of doing things is morally right. He has only asked us to embrace his word and bow the knee to tremble at his word. And here's Chan's conclusion. Francis Chan says, don't get so lost in deciphering that you forget to tremble. Don't get so lost in deciphering that you forget to tremble. Because here's the deal. I did. This week I got so lost in trying to figure out what is hell? What is it all about? How do I express it? I got so frustrated with that because I couldn't figure it out. And here's the deal. Jesus didn't go to great lengths to help us do that. His point was not for us to understand it all so that we could read his words and go, I know everything's going to happen in hell. That wasn't his point. The reason he talked about hell was this. He wanted to say, I don't want you to go there. I want you to know how terrible it is. I want you to know how bad it is. I want you to know that it's a place of torment. So just steer clear of it. Stay away from it. Understand it is not the place you want to be. This this is the whole point of why Jesus ever even talks about it. Stay out, he says. Which leads us to this next thought. Number one, hell's real. Number two, hell is torment. Number three, and some of you aren't going to, you'll push, but you're not going to like this. Number three, hell is a choice. Hell is a choice. So the rich man goes, Abraham, um, um, look, if I'm stuck here, then you do this. Can you send Lazarus back to my brothers? I got five brothers. They're clueless. And they're on the highway to hell just like I was. Can you send somebody back to my brothers and let them know that they don't have to come here? And Abraham says, they got the scriptures. They got Moses. They got the prophets. They got everything they need to know. If they'll just do what they know they need to do, they'll be okay. And he says, but wait, just, just, just give Lazarus a hall pass. Let him go back. Let him show up. Because if somebody comes back from the dead, then maybe they'll believe. Who told this story? Do you remember who told the story? Jesus, right? Who came back from the dead? Isn't that ironic? And how many people reject the words of one who came back from the dead? And reject his truth. And will find themselves in this very same place. It's it's a choice. You choose this. Which is hard for us to kind of wrap our little brains around just to be quite honest with this. The rich man had ignored the truth, and so would his brothers, and so do so many of us. So let's go back to the beginning. When, when God created the world, it was perfect. True or false? True. It was perfect. And then what happened? Sin came in. The devil showed up as a serpent. This, the story tells us in Genesis. Tempted Adam and Eve. Thanks a lot, guys. They took a bite of the forbidden fruit. And we've been on this slow slide of sin ever since, Right? So much so that at that point, from that point on, all of humanity was doing what? They were making this slow slide towards hell. You ever driven, maybe even like out in the country, and you see this barn that's over, kind of off to the side, that's been abandoned, nobody's done anything with it for years, what happens to it? It begins to what? Deteriorate, fall apart. It's just, it's just it rots, right? It's gone. That's what sin has done to humanity. And from the very beginning, when that happened, when sin came in... It, it made a difference, and it has put all of us on this slow slide towards hell. And you've chosen it. You've been a part of it, too. Have you, you ever been in a restaurant and you kind of open up the menu and you start looking at it? And you're like, huh, what am I going to get? I'm hungry. What am I going to get to eat? And you, you look down and you're like, maybe I'll get the chicken strips because the chicken strips are always safe, right? You're like, maybe that's what I'll do because it's always, you're always, but then you look up and you see something up in the corner of the menu and you're like, but maybe I'll get that. Maybe I'll try that. Have you ever ordered something against your better judgment? Like as soon as you order it, you're like, I don't know if I should have done that. And I've got a buddy, every time they go out to eat, he looks at the server and he's like, what would you get? And, and they'll be like, oh, I'll get this. And he's like, that's what I'll get. There's something wrong with him. He gets it, he eats it, he loves it. I don't know, he just, I don't know if he's adventurous or he has no taste buds, I don't know what it is. Me, I'm playing it safe. If I know I like something, that's, that's what I'm getting. But every so often I've went, I'm going to try that. And then they bring the plate. And I'm like, that was the worst mistake of my life. I regret it now. I know I'm going to regret it in an hour. You've done that? Yeah, you have. You've all done that. Because you've looked at the menu of life. And at some point you looked over at a sin on there and you said, you know, I'm going to choose that one. Against your better judgment. Every single one of us. Some of you are so perfect you've only done it once, but we've all done it at least once, right? And you know what that said? In that moment when you made that choice, you said, God, you know what, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm picking his team. At which point a God of justice had to say to you, all right, now you know what i got to do, right? Because now sin came in, which means you made the choice to begin that slow slide. And that slow slide ends where? Goes to hell. And there is nothing you can do to get back up to the top of the hill. That's just that's the reality of humanity. Yeah, but what what about what about the guy? What about the guy that lives in the jungle and has never heard the name of Jesus and has never heard the gospel? God's, God's gonna send him to hell? That's not right. That's not fair. That doesn't seem... What about the person that... What about this? We ask all those questions right away, right? We begin to ask those questions. Is God fair? Is God right? Can He do that? Listen to what Scripture says. Um, this is addressed in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Do you get that? What may be known about God is plain to them because God... God has made it plain to them. Here's what he's saying here. What people need to know, God has made known. For them to choose to believe in him, it's there. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Parents, you ever said that to your kids? You have no excuse. There's no excuse that you have in this instance. Paul says that's what God says here. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I just know that Paul said everything that people need to know, they have in front of them. And they choose whether they receive it or reject it. And I don't understand it because I don't think like God. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in a moment. But the bottom line is this, that every single one of us has begun that slow slide ...toward hell, and there is nothing that we can do about it. Hell is a choice. So I want to challenge you to consider a few choices today. I want to give you three choices to consider about hell. There there may be more than this, but these three in particular... ...I really want you to consider in light of this story today. And just for the record, I'm going to mess with you for these next couple of moments. Is that alright? Because... Like if you go to the, I don't like going to the doctor, just to be honest, and I certainly don't like going for a physical because when you do, they like poke you and prod you, and sometimes they hurt you before they help you. Call me Dr. Chad. I want to, I want to mess with you for just a couple of moments because I want to help you. There's three choices you need to consider about this topic of hell. Number one, you can choose to deny the truth of Scripture. This is what a lot of people like to do with this topic of hell because it's uncomfortable so the one choice that you can make is just to deny it just to, just to push it aside just to say I don't want to think about it I don't want to believe it I don't want to buy into it and you can choose to deny this truth of scripture here's how it plays out for a lot of people for some people say look this just can't be true because it doesn't make sense to me I can't, I can't understand it and because I can't logically conceive of it I choose not to believe it God, it doesn't seem right that this is how it should be, so I'm not going to believe that that's how it really is. I know you said that, God, but I don't believe that's how it really is. Could you say anything more arrogant? God, I know you said that, but I've, I've got it figured out. Thanks, God. When the truth is, maybe it's just too big for us to understand. You can choose to deny the truth of Scripture. I have, you know, all my life seen pictures of the Grand Canyon, right? I've seen pictures. I've seen movies. In school, you take a science class, and they show you, like, a flyover. You see the rock formations, all that kind of stuff. But I had never been to Arizona until just a couple of months ago. This winter, Ron and I had a chance to go. And that was the first time I'd ever been to the Grand Canyon. And that, my friends, is a totally different experience. Because you can see pictures. You can watch movies. But there ain't nothing like standing right there on the edge, I, am I right? How many of you have been there? Am I right? Yeah, it's in, it's incredible. And you stand there. It bothered me to stand there for all kinds of reasons, just to be honest. It bothered me. One of the big things was I couldn't tell where it ended. It just, it just went on and on. And I like to be able to kind of hold on to things and figure things out. And when I would look at it, I was troubled on the inside because I couldn't figure it out. Did you see in the news a guy fell in this week? 400 feet to his death. I know where he walked. Ron and I were right right there. I mean, you, you can walk right up to the edge. In fact, my, just for the record, my wife's crazy. Just for the record, I'm telling you this. She, she's like, an edge, awesome! <laughs> she walks right up to it. True story. We're walking along the path. She sees this edge and she just kind of goes walking up to it. I'm like, what are you doing? She says, I'm walking up. I want to look over. Is there something wrong with you? This is absolutely how it went. I'm not kidding. She would take a step towards the edge, and I would take a step backwards. Every every step she took that way, I took a step this way. So that by the point she was at the edge, I was standing on the other side of the path holding on to a tree. I am not kidding you. I was holding on to a tree. I was afraid to breathe because I thought I might startle her, and she'd kind of be like, like, you know? I'm standing there. She turns around. She's like, what are you you doing? I'm just chilling, baby. I'm just hanging out. It's all good. It's all good. I'm just here. She wanted to get right up to the edge. You can't understand how big it is. You can't understand that you can't grasp it with your little pea brain until you see it. So you're going to choose to deny the truth of Scripture because it doesn't make sense to you? Listen to what Scripture says. Romans Chapter 14, verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? or Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God, so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. He says, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. Whether you wanted to in this life or not. Whether you chose to deny scripture on this truth or not. There's going to come a day when you're going to acknowledge it. So you you got a free will, right? You can choose to deny this truth about scripture. I hope you won't. Here's a second choice you can make. Number two, here's a second choice. You can choose to question God's character. Number two, you can choose to question God's character. Because if we don't like this this truth, this is often, the second place is often where people end up. This is often where they land in the process. They they say, well look, if this is true, what kind of God is that? What kind of God would choose to send people to hell? What kind of God would be a God of eternal damnation? What kind of God is that? And oftentimes what that leads people to say is they'll say things like, I can't believe in a, I can't love a God who would. And they begin to question and challenge God's character because we don't buy it or we don't believe it. Here's a little quiz for you. Um, God is a God of love, true or false? God is a God of justice, true or false? And see, we wrestle with those things because in our culture, in our primarily middle class, Northwest Ohio, United States life, we don't have to wrestle with justice a whole lot. But you let some NFL player beat his wife, What is it we want from the commissioner of the NFL? We want justice. Read an article this week about how they're trying to reinstate Pete Rose into baseball. Remember Pete Rose, gambling scandal, great baseball player, but then he got shunned, a lifetime ban, right? And the article's going back and forth. Does he deserve forgiveness? Or he knows what he did. Maybe what he really needs is justice. Look, you can read all kinds of media and you can look at all kinds of things and there is no reason to rationalize things like the riots in Baltimore. But you have to understand this. You have to understand what's going on here, folks. The idea is this. People want justice and when they don't feel that they have it, they will go to extreme measures to try to find it, right? So what are we looking for? We want God to be a God of justice. Until it somehow damages my sensibilities. And I don't like what he's doing. And I don't like hell. And so I question him. And I wonder why God doesn't think the way that I think. Let me tell you why God doesn't think the way that you think. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 8. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In fact, Paul takes this another step forward when he's even talking about this idea of judgment and how God can choose to do whatever he wants to do in people's lives. And people are like, I don't get that. I don't like it. I don't like a God who has that kind of character. And here's what Paul says. Look at this. Romans chapter 9, verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who's able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Here's just a news flash for you. He is the potter. You're the clay. And the potter can do whatever he chooses to do. And he takes that thing and he shapes it and he molds it and he makes out of it whatever he wants to make out of it. And that clay, if you've ever worked with it, does not talk back to you, does it? You pull it and you shape it and you mold it and you do what you do with it. And does the clay ever say, hey, by the way, on the way down the next time, could you think about making me into something beautiful? I really don't want to be an ashtray. Does the clay say that? Not at all. The clay doesn't talk back to the potter. And Paul says, then who are we to talk back to God? And to question his character. Because his thoughts aren't like our thoughts. His ways aren't our ways. But we wrestle with that. And we're challenged with that. And we make statements like, I could never love a God who, what? You could never love a God who disagrees with you? You never love a God who sees things differently than you see them? Here's the deal, friends. God's perfect. Everything he does is right. And you're a fool to think otherwise. And we've just got to realize that naturally we will never fully understand and comprehend everything about him and who he is. At some point, like Abraham did in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, we just have to settle in on this truth. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Because he's the potter. And we're the clay. So you can choose to deny this truth of hell in Scripture. If that's your choice, you can make it. I hope you won't. Some of you wrestle with it because you don't like the God who would do that. And you could choose to question the character of God. But let me give you one more option. I brought out the lump of clay because I knew about this point in the sermon I would have to wake you back up. That was, uh, that was the motivation. But I almost didn't use it. Because when I, when I took it out of the, the package and was using it at home, I realized how messy it would make my hands. And then I knew there was a little bit more of the sermon. I didn't know what to do. And when I said this in first service, there's a lady right down there. She pointed at the baptistry and went, "You just go over and do a little wash." And third service wouldn't have to know, you know that kind of thing. Um, and honestly, I was thinking about what am I going to do? do? I take do I take like you know a bowl of water? I take wet wipes. What do I do about this? And it was like the Holy Spirit kind of spoke to my heart and said. Do you think the potter ever touches the clay and doesn't get his hands dirty? Do you think the potter ever touches the clay and doesn't have some of it left on him? See, when we talk about a God who sends people to hell, we make him so cold and heartless as if he doesn't care. His hands are all over your life, and the truth is your life is all over his hands. You're in his heart. He's not some cold, heartless God who sends people to hell. And I think we need to stop saying that. Because you're on this slow slide towards hell. God's not some cold, lifeless God, heartless God who sends people to hell. He's a loving God who did everything he could to snatch people out of it. And that's the truth of Scripture. So you can choose to deny or you can choose to question his character. But I challenge you with number three. You can choose to believe in a God of love. Because he didn't just get his hands dirty. He got nails through his hands. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish. But have everlasting, not death, not fire. (laughs) But everlasting life. And so the God who gets his hands dirty sent his only son to die for you. Not because he can't wait to send people to hell. But because he'll do anything he can to snatch you out of it. That's the most important thing that you can know and hear today. You get home from church and and I'm sitting on your porch. (laughs) That would freak some of you out, wouldn't it? (laughs) That would be... um, you get home from church and I'm sitting on your porch. And I say, hey, while well, I was waiting for you to get home, somebody, uh, somebody rolled up here with a bill for you to pay. And I paid it for you. You'd be grateful, but how grateful would you be? Well, it would demand, it would be determined by how much I spent. If it was the mailman and it was just a stamp that was needed because there's postage due and I gave him 50 cents, you'd be like, oh, thanks, man, high five, and that's cool because it was probably just another bill, right? You know, it's not a big deal. If it was your electric bill and another fifteen hundred 100 bucks, whatever, and I paid that for you, you'd be grateful that, thanks, man, you didn't have to do that. That's cool. If it was the IRS that showed up and realizes you ain't paid your taxes in 10 years, and they're not just here for your money, they're here to take you away to a very special little room where you'll stay for a long time. And I said, no, 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 I don't want them to go to jail. Here, I'll pay that for them. Then you'd really, you'd really owe me then, right? You'd be like, dude, you... Yeah, do that. You love me. That's awesome. Jesus didn't didn't talk about hell so much because he enjoyed it. He talked about hell so much because he knew how much it would cost him to die on the cross for you, to get his hands dirty so you wouldn't have to go there. I hope you'll choose to believe in a God who loves you so much and realize how much he paid When he paid your debt. So you wouldn't have to go to hell. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes. For just one more moment. And if you're here today. And you know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Then the reality of this is that I hope. That you will not worry about deciphering hell. But that you'll tremble when you think about it. Realizing what Jesus did to keep you out of it. And that you'll share that with others. But you'll never be able to work your way back up that slow slide. You'll never be able to earn heaven on your own. And I cannot wait to talk about heaven next Sunday. But if you're here today and you don't know that you'd go to heaven. In fact, you wonder, maybe you're... You're watching this on a screen somewhere, maybe you're sitting in the sanctuary, and you're pretty sure that you would you would end up in hell. and the good news is that God loved you so much that He sent His son Jesus to die for you so you wouldn't have to. And He gave his life so you could know peace and forgiveness and freedom and not eternal pain, but instead eternal life. And he says it's as simple as calling on the name of the Lord. And if you're here today and you say, Jesus, I need you to be my Lord and my Savior, to change my life so I can spend eternity in heaven with you. Would you just raise your hand? You can raise your hand, put it right back down. That's just you, man. Yeah, hands all over. Thanks. Anybody else? Yeah, thanks. God, I don't I don't want to miss your plan for my life. I want heaven. So if you raised your hand or if you know that he's your Lord and Savior, would you pray this prayer with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus for sending your Son to die for my sins. And I ask today that you'd forgive my sins, change my life. I give myself to you. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. And Father, we thank you for your word, your word that speaks your promises to us, your word that not only challenges us with truth, but encourages us with hope. And so, Lord, as we go from here, may we live in the light of knowing we have a God who's willing to get his hands dirty so that he could snatch us from hell and give us the promise of heaven. We pray that as we go from here that you'd go with us, send us out with your special favor and your wonderful peace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here. Have a great week. Invite mom to be with you next week. We're going to have a happy Heavenly Mother's Day. Thanks. See you next Sunday.